One of the most well-meaning but harmful statements uttered by a Christian was uttered by Soren Kierkegaard in his book, Fear and Trembling, where he called Christianity a leap of faith. One of his commentators said this, the idea is that because the religious is absurd, pardon me, and if I were writing this in a book, I'd put sick right there, author's mistake, not mine. Because the religious is absurd and cannot be understood, it cannot be approached rationally. That's wrong. There is no way we can think matters through and convince ourselves that it is the right step to make. Instead, we must put our faith in God and make the leap. In my defense, I wrote hogwash before Benji said it this morning. And I was like, oh, I got to change that. No, I'm keeping it. Hogwash. That's baloney. It's wrong. Let's get one thing straight. Christianity is not a leap of faith. It is a walk with the most knowledgeable, skillful, wise, loving person in the universe who loves you and will not ask you to leave your brain at the church door. Quite the opposite, in fact. God commands that you love him with all your mind. And I propose to look at tonight as evidence number one, a passage that shows that God is very interested in your right thinking, which will then lead to your right living. Tonight we'll examine one of the many heart-piercing observations that Jesus makes that cuts straight through all of our excuses and all of our lies and enables us to overcome one of the most crippling of sins, anxiety. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, me of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly, fathers know, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about the morrow, tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious of it, for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Tonight, I want to begin by looking at six arguments 
that Jesus lays out so that you can defeat anxiety, so that you can win the battle over worry. Now we're going to look at the first four arguments because those are important, but we're going to find that the last three are really the heart of what Jesus wants to get to. And we're going to spend time then in conclusion with the big idea we used last week, and that is to treasure God's rule, not stuff. Don't make stuff or relationships or circumstances your treasure. So last week, we discovered that when our eyes are fixed on stuff, we worship stuff. And tonight, we'll understand a little bit better the result of this wrong worship or what Paul says is idolatry. And we will see how to fix our eyes on what is most important. We'll understand how to value what is really valuable. And then we'll understand what I was talking about by God's rule so that we, you and I, will be able to treasure rightly as we go through this life. So let's begin. We're going to start by water skiing through the passage where Jesus begins by stating the problem. What's the problem? Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Remember last week, he's condemning this worship of stuff and he's picking right up there where he left off. And in a short, poetic, powerful way, Jesus makes it clear that we aren't supposed to worry about stuff. And when we keep our eyes on stuff or relationships or circumstances, as we talked about last week, then you and I will have anxiety. Because, face it, you can't have enough stuff. You can't have good enough relationships. You can't have perfect circumstances. We are not in heaven yet. So if you put your trust in those things, guess what? You're going to worry. So now he's going to lay out six arguments. What are they? Argument number one, your life is more than problems. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You don't need to worry about these things because your life is so much bigger. But I want to draw our attention as we get to this. What did Jesus talk about? Food and clothing. What do we worry about? Who's going to be in the playoffs in a couple months? We worry about, you know, how much is there on my Starbucks card? And if you're harder, you're really worried about that one. (laughs) Here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus actually, he doesn't hit these peripheral areas. He goes right for the heart. And And he talks about things that we would legitimately worry about if we didn't have clothing and didn't have food. He goes right for the heart. But he continues in the second argument, God takes care of small things. So if you're worried about food and clothing, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? 
The answer is yes. You are more valuable because you are made in the image of God. But we can't miss something. I want you to note, birds are eternally industrious. The only time you see a bird sitting is when he's looking for food or looking out for danger. And the slightest provocation will make that bird jump, right? When he tells you to look at the birds, he's not telling you not to be industrious. He's telling you not to worry. He's telling you to trust your heavenly father because your heavenly father can take care of the small things. Third argument that he gives, verse 27. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Worry hurts. Worry harms. Worry never helps. Ulcers, drinking, bouts of anger, bouts of depression. Need I say more? Argument four. Here's God's answer. God extravagantly provides. God doesn't just give a few pennies here, a few pennies there. Listen to this. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They're not fretting. They're not toiling. They're not trying to work all day and all night to get good clothes. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The flowers of the grass are more beautiful than any clothing you can get. But that's not the point. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Of course he will. I don't know if you ever had this thought pass through your mind. But several years ago, I was thinking, if you go up into the Sierras, there are valleys where if you cross over the ridge, you can look down into this valley. And some of them are so remote that in any given year, no human eye will ever see it. But it's filled with a carpet of flowers. Now that, that brings up an important point. Why would God make a mountainside carpeted by grass that no human being will ever see. Well, I think that teaches us at least three things. The first is, God does it because he likes it. My boys, when they were small, I'd pick them up and toss them, or I'd dance with them on my knees, and they'd say, do it again, Papa. Imagine God looking at the grass, make a flower, do it again. Do it again. Tirelessly. Because he enjoys it. I love that picture of God. Secondly, I think God makes whole mountains of flowers because it reminds us that the world is not about me. Nobody will ever see those, but God doesn't do it for them. God delights in oceans of fish that swim around coral reefs that no one sees just because he enjoys it. But thirdly, and I think more to the point of what Jesus is getting at in this passage, God does it because he loves 
being God. And only God can tirelessly, joyously, extravagantly bless his creation just because he wants to. He's been compared to a, a, a spring that just has water coming out and coming out and coming out tirelessly 24 hours a day. That is our God. My friends, you and I don't need to worry because God will provide extravagantly for you. Even, even if that extravagant blessing comes in a manner that you don't see because your eyes are fixed on stuff or relationships or circumstances. <clears throat> My friends, treasure God's rule, not stuff. Now, I want to start preaching. <laughs> I want to start preaching because Jesus has been, as it were, throwing body blows. And you know, if you ever watch boxing, the body blows are not really to knock the guy out. The body blows are to tire him down and wear him out. But now, Jesus is going for the head. He is trying to give a knockout shot. A knockout of what? A knockout of our wave-like, anti-faith, blown and tossed by the wind that receives nothing, fear and anxiety. He wants to knock that out for good so that you and I can walk this earth without fear. And here we go. Argument five. God's got your back. God's not only got your back, but he's got your front and he's got you all the way around. Listen, therefore, key word, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. By the way, I love that, need them all. He knows what you need. Note the therefore. Based on the arguments we went through last week in 19 through 24, and based on the first four verses here, why we should not worship at the throne of stuff and why we should not be anxious, now Jesus wants to clarify. He wants to go for the jugular, so to speak, on the fears that strangle us, because that's what they do. What is it that you and I must do if we are to live above the fears that plague every human being on the face of the earth? Trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Know them, because when you're anxious, you go to the Bible and you find what God has promised you and then trust them. Believe that they're for you today. Trust those promises of God because he knows what you need and he willingly, extravagantly, joyously provides for what you need. In fact, let me give you one of those promises. One of the best promises in the entire Bible is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? All things. I want you to take this home with you. What thing, what relationship, what circumstance are you worshiping in the sense that you're, you're so concerned about this thing and, and you can't get it out of your mind? What thing are you not trusting God for? And ask him, open your heart to God. It's not like he doesn't know what's in your heart. And just say, God, this is the thing I'm worshiping. Show me why I'm worshiping this and show me a promise. Show me a promise that I can cling to, that I can set my eyes on so that I'm not setting my eye on something. Perhaps, for example, your idol is circumstance. You're feeling mistreated. You're underappreciated. Perhaps that's true, but there's a promise for that. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. I messed that up, didn't I? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Jeez, I don't know why I'm doing that. For good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Never try to do a verse from memory on the pulpit. Doesn't matter how many times you've done it at home. Give me an amen, Benji. (laughs) Perhaps your idol is a circumstance. Romans 8.28. Perhaps your idol is a relationship. Perhaps you are looking for a relationship that will meet your needs in a world that's more populated than ever. This is an increasing problem. Why? It's because we isolate ourselves by being busy. God offers a promise for that. Psalm 27.10 For my father, my father, my father, Father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Trust the Lord when your heart is heavy because you don't have enough fellowship. I want to emphasize this for a minute because this is important. At the essence of who we are created by God, we are made for community. And if you are finding yourself isolated right now. Part of it might be some sin going on in your heart, but part of it might just be legitimate lack of that fellowship. My first thing is go to the Lord. He will take you in. He promises, Psalm 27.10, but go to him and ask him to open a relationship so that you can have that friendship with someone who can meet you where you are. Perhaps your idol is stuff. When your idol is stuff, in general, this is an easy one to see right through. Assuming your stuff that you need isn't food or clothing. Oh, wait, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. But for most of us, that's not what it is. If the stuff we make into an idol isn't necessary, then the answer is simple. Take your eyes of your heart, take the eyes of your mind off those and put them on a promise. Now, because I've been preaching these last couple of weeks straight to my heart more than your heart, 
I did something about it this week. In Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh, your majesty, hear my voice. Make your ears attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Yahweh, should mark sins, O King, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That is the passage that has been on my heart and mind all week. And I tell you, it is an effective cure. Memorizing scripture is one of the best ways I have ever found to fight sin. Why? It's because I'm taking my eyes off whatever I'm wrongly thinking about and I'm putting them on Jesus. Maybe there will be a sermon on Psalm 130 soon. This was indeed the medicine I needed to continue curing the soul cancer that has crept into my soul whenever I look at my favorite dispensers of carcinogens on the internet. It might behoove you to do the same thinking. What are my favorite, what are your favorite dispensers of carcinogens on the internet? Mine is a forum that I like to go to and people are chatting about a particular topic. Yours might be something else. But remember, God's word, his active promises for you are for you when you put them into your heart. Now, one more thing about this because it's a hard thing that Jesus says specifically food and clothing and we are mostly worried about football games and Starbucks cards. But there really is a need. There are many in this world who are lacking food and clothing. And so the promise... To provide is the promise, get this, this is huge, to give you what you need to glorify God. God's promise is to give you what you need to glorify Him. And there may come a day when He, withholding these things from us, food, clothing, whatnot, might bring Him more glory than us getting them. And this is one of this is the point of one of the most frightening verses in the entire Bible. If you don't want to be scared, plug your ears right now. Habakkuk 3:17 through 19, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'm starving. I don't have anything that I need and I don't have it for my family. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and He makes me tread on high places. This is a good point. If you are able to listen to that verse, if you are able to read that verse and in your heart rejoice that God can make that true in you, there is a high probability that you are a child of God. 
You can be sure that you are a child of God if when you read a passage like this, you can say, praise Jesus. And you will be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where he says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And you have reason for this confidence. You have more reason to praise Jesus for that. In Psalm 139.5, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Non-believers, on the other hand, don't have any promise like that. There is no promise for non-believers. Or as Jesus calls them in this passage, Gentiles. They cannot rejoice because their joy is in stuff, in relationships, and in circumstances. And they've got no hope for protection in front of you, behind you, and all around you. So, what's the solution? What do we do about that? Treasure God's rule, not stuff. Or, as Jesus put it in our second point, pay attention to what really matters where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. This is where we're going to answer the question, what do I mean by God's rule? It means that we seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. It means that we put the agenda of our lives on advancing God's kingdom and not my kingdom. Because my kingdom is ruled by a tyrant. And not only is he a tyrant, but he is, th this, this guy is over here sometimes, he's over here other times, can't trust him. So what do I need to do? I need to give my kingdom and give it to the Lord. I need to seek his kingdom first. I need to make sure that I am putting the Lord first. What things will be added to us? What will happen if we do this? Whatever we need to glorify God. And this is true if what we need to glorify God is no fruit on the vine and no herd in the stalls and no rain in the skies. Two things you need to know about this. Two things you need to be sure of right now. Two realities that must come home to your heart and mind every day. That is number one, the kingdom of God is where, God, where what God wants done gets done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. And the kingdom of God is everywhere and every when. And because this is true, because number one is true, the world you live in, Christian, you who trust the promises of God for you in Christ, the world you live in is a perfectly safe place for you to be, even if there's no food in the fields and no herd in the stalls. Now, in the context of these passages, we see that expanding the area where what God wants done gets done more than the things we worship is how we uncripple our hearts. Take time today to ensure that you are valuing that which is valuable to God. And that is when you will be treasuring God's rule more than stuff. And you can do this because the world you live in is a perfectly safe place to be. Now the last argument Jesus gives, 
I called it, join with Jesus now. There is no time for worry. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. You all know the great poet Willie Nelson. He said, I could cry for all the time I've wasted, but that's a waste of time and tears. Sorry. Likewise, you can cry for all the problems to come, but that's not going to help you one bit. Now, at first, this verse seems to be indicating that we don't worry about tomorrow because we're worrying about today. But that, of course, would cut straight across everything Jesus is saying in this whole passage. Instead, Jesus is condemning here worry because the world you live in is a perfectly safe place for you to be. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble does not mean that you're allowed to worry about those things. It means that in the power of the Holy Spirit, work with him to act, not fret, on those things that need to be acted upon. My friends, worry is always treasonous. Worry is never appropriate and is always an act of unbelief against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even though it's the most expected attitude we can take in the world around us. But this is why, because it's expected, because everybody's doing it, we must preach the good news to ourselves every time we face temptation. When we face temptation to worry, we need to remember not to be anxious about anything, but if everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is when we will be able to treasure God's rule, not stuff. Jesus, in this analysis, in these verses 19 through 34, Jesus presents us with a very clear, very profound, true analysis of where we are and what we should do about it. Namely, anxiety. And what we need to do about it is turn it back to him because he understands. And we understand that when we pray to Jesus, we are praying to the wisest, most intelligent, capable, and giving person in the universe who is willing to help us in any and every situation. Jesus understands you. He knows where you are right now. Now, he gets how you feel. He recognizes your fears and your failures and your dreams. He acknowledges all the best qualities and hopes and longings. And he knows your sin. And yet he's still willing to bring you to him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, assurance, knowledge that God is there, draw near to the throne of grace 
the throne of God doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Look, Jesus knows that like money, worry is a God to most people on earth. It controls our emotions. It controls our thoughts. It towers over us to rule all of our attitudes and actions. And worry, therefore, paralyzes unnecessarily. And when we are thus paralyzed, we prove that we have completely misunderstood ourselves, this world, and even God ourselves. We underestimate our own weakness and we overestimate our strengths. We ignore the reality slapping us in the face. God is here and God loves you. And we do it because our eyes are not fixed on him. Because when he is being patient with us, we are not paying attention. The cure for this ill is to trust God's rule and not stuff. Do so by fixing your heart and your mind on Jesus. And this, my friends, is why when Kierkegaard said Christianity is a leap of faith, he was dead wrong. He was dead wrong. Christianity is a relationship with the all-knowing, all-loving God, creator of the universe. And the Bible is not a book of questions, though certainly no one has all the answers. But it is a book of answers and meeting the one who will love and guide those who trust him and who, more than anything else, value what is truly valuable. Treasuring God's rule and not stuff. Lord Almighty, I pray that you would bless us, that you would give us grace tonight as we seek to fix our eyes on you by the grace of God. Help us, Jesus, to know your power in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.